Hello, and thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast on sexual abuse prevention. My name is Megan, and I have created a parent class called the Top 10 Things Caregivers Can Do to Prevent Child Sexual Abuse, and I'm going to be presenting the first of those 10 tips today. So first of all, a little bit about myself is, again, my name is Megan, and I am the author of a book called Who's the Boss of This Body? that is now available on Amazon. That book was born out of my years and years of experience working with child sexual abuse victims. I started working with this population back in 2002, and I feel that it's just been an honor and a privilege over the course of my career to get to hear the stories of children and families that have gone through this very preventable situation. And so I am really looking forward to having a wider audience. I've been presenting this class to parents locally in our area here in western Colorado for about 10 years now. But since I created the book, Who's the Boss of This Body, I wanted to be able to let parents all over listen to this at their convenience. And so hopefully this will provide some extra information to go along with with reading that book. Um, So coming out of this class that I've been teaching has always been this question of what can I take home to my kids and and looking for book recommendations. And there's definitely a lot of good books out there, but just none of them tackled all of the issues that I wanted parents to be able to, to talk about with their kids. And so hopefully... Listening to this podcast will give you a little bit more of an understanding of what I think is really important for kids to know and also for parents to know in order to prevent any kind of sexual abuse trauma. So I have been working with the Garfield County Department of Human Services since 2004. I am a mental health clinician with them, and so I see a lot of kiddos that come through when there are investigations about child sexual abuse, and I get to meet with them and their families. I have been doing that out of the Riverbridge Regional Center, our local children's advocacy center, since 2007, when we first opened. And I am just really privileged to be able to be sharing this this information. So let's go ahead and get started on tip number one. Just a little bit of an explanation of what I consider to be the the biggest issue around child sexual abuse is that kids can't talk about it. And the reason for that is that they are overwhelmed, they're confused, and quite honestly, the first time that this happens to a child, they usually have absolutely no idea what just occurred. And so what I think is really critical in tip number one is that children have an idea of what child sexual abuse is, and they know that it happens, unfortunately, to a lot of kids. And so it most likely will happen to somebody that they know in their lifetime. So I think there are two reasons primarily that this knowledge is not commonplace among children. And that is, first of all, I think that that parents are really reluctant to talk about child sexual abuse because they have a fear of scaring their child and providing them with, with some imagery or knowledge that would be really terrifying. And I 
just want to think about all the different ways that the kids are at risk of child trauma. I mean, really, it's endless. There are, as long as your kid is leaving the house and getting in a car or, or out uh, doing anything fun here in Western Colorado, we have kids all the time out mountain biking and skiing and doing all kinds of high-risk activities. But what what is happening is that they, we are always putting things in place to be able to let them talk about things that happen. And so with child sexual abuse, that's not occurring. And when a child is sexually abused and they are overwhelmed and confused because they have no idea what this is, they have no idea that anybody's ever experienced it, they're much more likely to stay silent. So kids do all of these high-risk activities, and we accept that, and we tell them about their dangers of doing them very often, such as you need to wear a helmet, etc. But with child sexual abuse, we, we don't share any information with them generally. And so what I think kids really need to know is what it is and that it happens to, to a lot of kids. And I, I pretty much, my experience is that when you are telling kids about sexual abuse, they're not getting any kind of information that's really legitimately going to be very terrifying to them. They're going to, more than anything, think it's silly and they won't be able to believe anybody would want to do that to a kid. But I'll be giving you a script of what I think you should say to your child and it will be in a, a very non-terrifying Kind of way because it's really information that um, I don't know. There's a lot of things out there that scare kids. I think about what we do at when children are school age and they're going in and practicing lockdown drills because they're having to imagine a gunman coming into the classroom. Or even my daughter, I remember having nightmares when she had fire safety week at school because she was having to stop, drop, and roll and visualize her house on fire, where she would go as an exit strategy. And all of these things are, are important to do. I, I certainly wouldn't say we shouldn't do those things, but they, they do put images in a child's mind of very scary things happening. And with child sexual abuse, really, the only thing we want them to understand is that sometimes there are people out there that want to do kind of a weird thing and look at or touch their private parts. And if anyone ever does that, they should tell us about it because that person's breaking a rule. So... So hopefully it will not be nearly as terrifying as, as parents often are anticipating. Um, the second thing is that parents really worry that they are going to be introducing sex to a child at a very young age. And I often get asked, at what age should I start having this conversation? And, and I'll get more into details about that in future tips. But basically, as soon as you're starting to have language. You can be talking to your kids about some sexual abuse prevention strategies, and they will have no extra knowledge about what sex is. I think that when, when we're trying to wait and have this sexual abuse prevention talk along with the sex talk, we're really running the risk of mixing those two things up, and they couldn't be farther from apart. They are two totally different things, sex and sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is an abusive experience. It's very often very confusing, overwhelming, scary for a child, and produces very bad feelings, which is the opposite of what we want from a healthy sexual experience. So it is very easy for kids to have knowledge on sexual abuse prevention and still not have any 
extra knowledge about sex. So I will be getting more into that specific script here before the end of this podcast, but I just want parents to have some some extra information before that on really understanding what sexual abuse is. And so the the definition that really the one I use comes from the National Child Traumatic Stress Network is Child sexual abuse is really any interaction between a child and an adult or another child in which the child is used for the sexual stimulation of the perpetrator or an observer. It can include both touching and non-touching behaviors. And touching behaviors, of course, involve touching of the vagina, penis, breast, buttocks, any oral genital contact, or sexual intercourse. And non-touching behaviors can include voyeurism, trying to look at or photograph a child's naked body, or exposing private parts to a child. Um, This would be exhibitionism. And then exposing a child to pornography. This is something that, unfortunately, with the advent of smartphones, is just so readily available. And very often, children stumble onto pornography just on their own, by accident, sometimes, when they're just looking up something and inadvertently they can make a small uh, typo and, and get all kinds of imagery if you're not if you don't have the right parental controls on your computer. But it's also um, it, it's really easy to have an opportunity for an offender to expose a child to pornography and be able to explain it away. And so if you think about it, if somebody tests your child to see if they can keep a secret and shows them some explicit material on their phone, a child's natural reaction might just be curiosity at first. And they can then see if that child is going to tell. And if they do, they can explain it away pretty simply. I mean, imagine somebody telling you after you've confronted them about showing their child pornography, and they say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad. (laughs) I'm so glad that he told you about that. That was so embarrassing. You know, these pop-ups, and he was playing with my phone, and I didn't even know what was happening, and the next thing you know, I look over, and he's looking at this stuff, and oh my gosh, I wasn't even really sure if he saw anything, so I didn't want to bring it up to you, and they can just explain away the situation and make it a lot less likely that you would report it, and then they have really important information that your child has a big mouth, which which is exactly what we want and is not going to be a good victim because they're going to be going to you and, and telling you things. So, so child sexual abuse, it's, it's really, I think one of the main reasons we need to talk about this is because it is a major public health issue. It is not rare. Um, Retrospective research really indicates that as many as one out of four girls and one out of six boys will experience some form of sexual abuse before the age of 18 those statistics do vary quite a bit depending on whether they're defining sexual abuse as, as um, either contact or not in contact sexual abuse. But um, definitely we know it's happening to a lot of kids. And the number of children that this happens to definitely merits having to have some kind of educational programs in place. Generally, that does not happen in the schools, and so it's really up to the parents. And in my experience, a lot of parents are not having these conversations with their their kids. So they definitely should be. And so that is hopefully why you're listening to this podcast and, and getting this information so that you will be more knowledgeable and prepared to do that. Um, and especially when we consider that victims 
They don't meet any specific profile. Families affected by sexual abuse can span every ethnicity, race, religion, any level of education, the parents, any economic background. Really, no one is immune. Now, as we get into a later tip, I will be talking about more of some of the risk factors and um, some of the things that, that might make a child more vulnerable, certainly. But in general, it is just important to have education across the board because really no child is immune to this. So it's better to, to treat this as a universal problem. So when we're, we're talking about sexual abuse, of course, the, the really important thing to consider is the traumatic piece of it. As a mental health therapist, this is my main concern, is just really wanting to make sure that children are not traumatized. And I think that like with any kind of scary, confusing, overwhelming experience, there is a potential that a child can be resilient. And they can also be traumatized. So a lot of what this, this series is going to be addressing is how to really prevent child sexual abuse trauma. That's really what we have the most control over. And one of the things that I think is really important to understand is that when we're kind of talking about in general sexual abuse, but looking at contact versus non-contact, and not to get too confused in thinking that the extent of the trauma is going to be defined by what happened because the the actual incident of abuse sometimes has very little to do with determining the ultimate outcome of how traumatized a child is. And so there's a lot of different factors that go into that, but I think that in in general you have to consider that a person's res uh, response, the level of secrecy, and just how they're supported afterward is going to really determine how traumatized they are. So I can use a couple of examples from my clinical experience. One is remembering a client that I worked with, and she was only seven years old when her mom's boyfriend sexually assaulted her. And so what I use in therapy is a, a measurement called um, the uh, CPSS. It's the Child Post-Traumatic Stress Symptom Scale. And that determines what the level of post-traumatic stress that this child had. So after the incident had occurred and after several weeks of therapy, I went ahead and administered this measure. Now, this child, um, upon being sexually abused, pretty much immediately after... Um, was able to tell her mom. She was brought to the Children's Advocacy Center. She received medical care. She received a forensic interview. An arrest was made. And she started therapy with me. And so she really, right away, was able to start talking about this incident and processing it. And so we were able to, to get her into therapy. And, of course, on that measurement tool that a 12 indicates post-traumatic stress, she had a score that was really rather high. It was in the 40s. And so it merited her doing trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. That's the kind of therapy that I practice. And after several months of that therapy, I reassessed her, and that score was down under a 12, indicating that she no longer had any kind of post-traumatic stress. 
Also, medical evaluation showed that she didn't have any kind of damage or any kind of permanent injury or, um, you know, she didn't contract any STIs or anything like that. And so she was physically healthy. And I would say she was also mentally healthy. And so we were able to get her into counseling, get her to complete counseling. And within several months, she was back to her her regular life, I would say. Um, of course, having this horrible thing happen will always be a sad thing for her. But I think that she was really very recovered. And I still, this is years and years later, run into this child and she is thriving and really doing very well. Now, I compare that to another kid that I worked with who I met at age 15. She came in after um, she had made a disclosure to somebody about being uh, sexually harassed, essentially, by her mom's boyfriend. And what she went ahead to talk about in her forensic interview was how at about seven or eight years old, he had started to make very just sexually inappropriate comments to her. He would talk about her breasts and how he wanted her to have breasts like her mom someday and what he would want to do to her breasts. And he was very, very graphic and explicit in his language. And this just got worse over the years. And she was very, very afraid to tell. She was scared of upsetting her mom, upsetting the relationship. But she was really very terrified of him and of him doing something. And so she spent a lot of time um, just avoiding him. But there were times that mom would say, oh, well, he's going to be hooking up from soccer practice tonight. And she would just have anxiety all day. She always had a lot of stomach aches. And she would feel like she was going to have a panic attack when she knew that she was going to have to be spending any kind of time alone with him. She would lock her bedroom door at night. She started getting really a lot of body issues and self-consciousness and just fear of his comments and just feeling very overwhelmed and stressed when he did make the comments to her. So I ran that same assessment on her. And again, she had a score high in the 40s. But her question to me was, well, how long have I had a score that high? And I said, I don't know. How, how long do you remember feeling this way? And she says, I felt this way since he first moved in when I was like seven or eight years old. And so really, there's the possibility, the probability that she had some kind of symptoms of post-traumatic stress for seven, maybe even eight years of her life. And so I think that it's just... It's hard to say. I mean, clearly, no one wants their child to go through either one of these experiences. But I really don't think that you can just automatically assume that a sexual assault is worse than sexual harassment because of the fact that in one case, she suffered from eight years of post-traumatic stress versus a child that only had a few months of it. Now, granted, he never physically touched her, But when there's no long-term physical injury and and damage, it's just, it's really hard to say. And I think a lot of other things go into it, such as whether or not there is prosecution, whether or not you're getting family support, and all of these other things that that can play into determining the level of, of trauma. So 
Hopefully you have a little bit more of a clear understanding now about what sexual abuse is, and I want to come back to really what you want to be saying to your child. And so here's the script that I referred to earlier, and I want you to be able to to say this to your child to really help them have some kind of knowledge of what sexual abuse is. I want you to know that sometimes grown-ups or even maybe other kids, people that we know even, might want to do something a little bit strange. They might want to look at or touch your private parts. They might want you to play games with your private parts, or they might even want to make you look at or touch or ask you to touch theirs. And if anybody ever is doing that, honey, I want you to know that they are breaking a rule and you can tell me about it so I can help you. So it sounds very simple, but I am telling you that of the hundreds of sexual abuse survivors that I've worked with, I don't think any of them had heard that prior to their initial abuse. They had heard things such as, oh, don't let anyone touch you there, and those kind of comments are problematic. Um, You're no-no square, keep it private, that kind of stuff. But they really need to know that this thing exists. It's called sexual abuse. It's helpful to name things. Um, And letting them know that when people do this, they are breaking a rule. They're trying to trick a child and that you want them to come and talk to you about it. So, So please just know that that simple knowledge can really help when, when an incident happens for a child to be able to have some kind of frame of reference and knowledge of like, I know what I need to do about this. So that is um, pretty much the end of tip number one today. So I want to thank you so much for tuning in for the first time. Next time when I uh, present, it's going to be on tip number two. And so that's going to be on who sexually offends, and getting more information and knowledge about that important tip. So thank you so much for listening. And I just, I want to end every podcast with just information because I realize that I do have survivors listening. There are survivors in every audience because this is something that is so prevalent. And if you have not ever gotten your own help, I suggest that you reach out. There are a lot of great resources out there. One of them is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Their phone number is 1-800-656-HOPE. And if you want to report any kind of child sexual abuse, you should always contact your local Child Protective Services or your local law enforcement. So thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to you coming back for tip number two.